Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm really happy to be reconnecting with a former guest, Dr. Warren Frockmorton. So welcome back to MindShift Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, I know we talked, it was probably a few years ago, I guess we talked about the first edition of your book, Getting Jefferson Right, that you co-wrote with Michael Coulter in the context of how it debunked David Barton's book. Uh, I guess it was The Jefferson Lies, wasn't it? So you've now sure. come out with a second edition so what's the backstory? Why did you feel the need to come out with another sort of revised edition? David Barton came out with his own second edition. I believe it was 2016. And he responded to our book in that uh, second edition. Now, that's still some time ago. So why did we, why did we come out with one now? Uh, still is a good question. Probably the, the main reason is that David Barton continues to be pretty important on the uh, Christian nationalist side of things. Uh, and uh, as if on cue, of course, we recently had have a new Speaker of the House and the U.S. Congress, and that's Mike Johnson. And Mike Johnson, uh, I was uh, the first to bring this out as well, that, that Mike Johnson was uh, one of David Barton's uh, I guess you'd say proteges in a way. Ah. He was a uh, Louisiana legislator attending one of uh, David Barton's uh, conferences that uh, he hosts for state legislators. Uh, Barton is in a way a, a, a kind of a one-man recruiting tool for the Republican Party. He, uh, uh, I don't know how many times a year, but he hosts what he calls pro-family legislative conferences, and he brings state legislators from you know various state legislatures in or goes to them and has conferences and he, he'll bring in uh, federal legislators and various government officials to speak to them. But it's not just to educate them. He's also looking for talent to kind of promote to the federal level. And uh, Mike Johnson was one of those. And so here he is, Speaker of the House. So Barton has uh, gotten a lot of attention lately uh, because of that. Uh, connection. Uh, Mike Johnson says that he's been, uh, Barton, that is, has been profoundly influential mm. on uh, just about everything Mike Johnson does. So, you know, he just, uh, you would think if you were, you know, truly a historian or a academic of some kind, you would think having a book pulled by your publisher for historical errors would be a career-ending event. One would think. One would think, but uh, in his case, David Barton's case, it just didn't uh, turn out that way. Uh, he, in a sense, he got maybe got stronger. I don't know, but mm -hmm. the, the and the other reason we brought the book out uh, in a second edition is because at least some of those, maybe many, most many of them, of the stories, they're still around. They they're still making the rounds. People still tell them Christian nationalism thrives on historical revisionism. 
and so we we felt like we needed to add more claims that we didn't take up the first time. So we added about uh, 120 pages to this to the book for the uh, it's almost a you know whole new book really, mm-hmm. uh, and so we felt we needed to take up some new claims we didn't take up before, and we needed to respond to Barton's you know response to us. So that's that's a big part of it, and also we we did uh, we did add some claims from other people like Eric Metaxas and Stephen Wolf. This new strain, if you will, not I mean it's it's actually kind of an old strain, but a recycled mm-hmm. strain of Christian nationalism that is a little darker even than uh than what David Barton's is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here, isn't there? Because we mentioned before we hit record when I heard about the Stephen Wolf connection I haven't read the case for Christian nationalism, but when I've, I've been doing some research today in preparation for talking to you, and one of the things I instantly noticed was that it was published by Canon Press out of Moscow, Idaho, which, of course, that's affiliated with Doug Wilson. And Doug Wilson is a big promoter of, well, this paleo-confederate thing that I've done a lot of episodes on Doug Wilson talking about you know, his book, Southern Slavery, as it was, and he's a big you know Christian patriarchy guy, Christian nationalist guy kind of a reconstructionist in some ways. He's a very slippery character, isn't he? But so there's a connection there for sure, isn't there? Because obviously, why would it be published by Canon Press? So uh, I think at some point we need to get into that whole issue there of Stephen Wolf's book. But I was thinking maybe we, if the listeners haven't sort of understood the backstory, could you tell us about, so Barton's book, it was, it was written in 2012, wasn't it? It was, the full title is the Jefferson Lies, Exposing the Myths You've Always Believed About Thomas Jefferson. It was published by Thomas Nelson, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, Christian publishing houses in the world, isn't it? But like you say, so the book was pulled. What what was the story there? What actually happened? Uh, when I heard that David Barton was going to be bringing out a book about Thomas Jefferson, I, I forget how I heard about it, but I heard that he was, this was uh, in late 2011, I uh, requested a pre-publication copy of the book, and I was surprised that they sent it to me because because I had already been writing about uh, some of Barton's historical misadventures. But they did; they sent me a copy, and so I uh, I got it in my head that I would write a rebuttal and have it ready pretty soon after his book came out. Well, uh, his book came out in April of 2012. And our book came out in May. It was an ebook at at the start. Uh, we just brought it out on Amazon, uh, but immediately it had an impact, and so we worked to to get it out on paperback and, you know, kind of spruce it up a bit. But at any rate, uh, there were a number of individuals who uh, one in particular was a guy named Jay Richards, who was a uh, is a philosopher and a uh, theologian. He's now a fellow at Heritage Foundation, a pretty conservative place. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, at that time, uh, Jay read the book, our book, and uh, he confided in me that uh, he had he had uh, privately had doubts about Barton's work for some time. And when he read our book, he was sure of it, sure that you know we were right and Barton was not. Uh-huh. So he um, 
he approached Glenn Beck and he approached James Robeson, a, a preacher in Texas, and uh, they uh, asked him to seek out some Christian historians to read both books, our book and Barton's book. And uh, he did that. And the historians came back and said we had exposed some of Barton's errors. And they basically said we had we had the better case. And uh, they those people confronted Barton and uh, Barton did, wouldn't hear it. You know, he, he thought he was right. But one part of the story is that there were a lot of people within Christianity and still are who know that uh, David Barton's historical approach is, uh, is off base. Mm-hmm. Well, that story got back to Thomas Nelson. Uh, Jay Richards also talked to Thomas Nelson about it. They had our book and they read it and um, they they agreed. They thought we had the, the better case and they decided that they they couldn't leave the book in print. And so they pulled the book uh, in August. I think it was August 8th or 9th is when the news hit that they had taken the book off the shelves. They were not going to publish it anymore. And they gave Barton his books back. And that was, that just almost never happens. It's very rare, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the book was uh, on the bestseller list, New York Times bestseller list. Uh, he had been on the, the Daily Show. Uh, or uh, John Daly, I think. Uh, I, I'm kind of getting those. I'm getting that person mm. mixed up. But he was promoting anyway, for sure. He sure was. And anyway, it was a popular book, and uh, they took it off the shelf. They just stopped publishing it because they felt that the uh, the facts weren't there. That's kind of how they said it. And so uh, he uh, later published a second edition, as we discussed. And uh, but that was the that's the backstory. His book was pulled for historical errors, which, as I say, never, almost never happens. Mm-hmm. And yet, as you say, he was able to spin it because I've read some articles about his response to it being pu- pulled. And his basic thing was like a conspiracy theory slant, wasn't it? It's was like, look what they they tried to cancel me. They didn't want the truth about Jefferson to get out there. But of course, one of the things that comes across in these articles, I'm reading one of on NPR, it was really interesting back in 2012. And the issue was, is that you and Michael Coulter and some of the others, you were Christian historians. You weren't, you know, quote, secular historians, non-Christians who were trying to cancel David Barton. You're saying, hang on a minute, uh, we're fellow believers here, but yet you're still getting it wrong from a historical perspective. So they, he couldn't argue with that angle, but he was still able to spin it. wasn't, and, and say, well, you know, they've tried to cancel me and but he, his book is still out there. I mean, you can get it on Amazon. I think, I don't know if Wall Builders ended up publishing it. That's his organization, isn't it? So it's it's not that it's not out there at all, is it? Oh, it's out there. You can mm-hmm. get it on Amazon. Uh, World Net Daily published it, uh, published the second edition in 2016. And then I don't know what happened with them, but eventually Wall Builders did pick it back up. But yeah, you can still, you can still get it. Uh, he wasn't being... Uh, canceled or censored, they just they made a business decision that uh, they didn't want to publish a book that had what they considered to be, you know, substantial number of errors. They they felt that that even uh, trying to correct them, it would have been uh, it would have just changed the book too much. Mm-hmm. And what was the issue? Because from re- I haven't read uh, the Jefferson Lies, but from what I've read about it. The issue was that he was essentially trying to sanctify Thomas Jefferson. I mean, is that kind of the correct thesis of the book that 
I think you said in the NPR article that he's trying to turn Thomas Jefferson, you say, into a modern day, a person that modern day evangelicals could love and identify with. And you say, that's not Jefferson. That's not who Jefferson actually was. He's trying to turn Jefferson into this sort of evangelical of today, this sort of progressive guy who wasn't racist, who, you know, was was ahead of the curve and all the rest of it. And uh, this this kind of ties into the Christian nationalist piece somehow, doesn't it? Right. There there were a number of things that uh, he wanted to do in this project with uh, Thomas Jefferson, but he, he he functioned like a defense attorney. You know, anything that Jefferson did that was was uh, morally questionable, he tried to find a way to make Jefferson, you know, to exonerate him from any of those things, like having children with one of his slaves. And uh, he said, there's no possible way uh, he could have done that. He tried to whitewash his record on slavery. Jefferson did say some things, of course, that were, you know, morally positive on slavery, but he also owned owned slaves. And he not he didn't just own slaves or enslave people. He he bought and sold slaves. It wasn't just that he inherited enslaved people. It wasn't that kind of thing. He once he had them, he trafficked in them. I mean he and he sent mm-hmm. slave catchers after them. If they ran away, you would think if he was so against slavery He'd look the other way if, you know, somebody ran off or something. But no, he, he hired slave catchers to go get them. And mm. he even, in a sense, uh, bred human beings because he said, I, he, he wrote to, uh, I forget who it was he wrote to, but he wrote in one of his letters that he didn't really care that much how much a young woman worked because she's far more profitable to him if she had children because that would just be more slaves. Mm. I mean, what? who thinks like that? Yeah. I mean, not everybody at that time did. Even if you judge Jefferson by the standards of his time, there were yeah. at that time in history there were people who were emancipating their slaves. Uh, Jefferson freed a couple uh, of Sally Hemings' children, and then when he died, the the rest of them were were emancipated. But uh, you know, not not anybody else. Well, does Barton, he disputes the fact that Jefferson had children by Hemings. Isn't that, isn't that one of the claims in the books? He says, no, that never happened. But there, there is historical precedent that he did, in fact, have children by her, didn't he? Well, there's it, that's one of those claims that, that we say in our second edition, that, that good people can see the evidence, you know, either way. Mm. But, but the, we also take the view that the preponderance of the evidence favors the conclusion that he that he did father those children. The DNA evidence is not conclusive, it, although it does suggest it's a Jefferson male. There is a dozen or so that that may have uh, be may be implicated. But Jefferson was around Sally Hemings during the windows of conception, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it could have been know, him. Yeah, it could have, certainly could have been him. The, yeah. To say that it couldn't have been is again uh, being a defense attorney instead of a historian. And uh, we we argue that uh, it certainly was possible, and the evidence certainly leans that way. But there's you have to go on circumstantial evidence to to get there because it, you know the DNA evidence can't can't necessarily prove one mm-hmm. which which of the Jefferson males, but it certainly could have been him. Right. 
but there's a but there's some pretty strong circumstantial evidence. So uh, that Barton says that it couldn't have been just shows his uh, bias. Well, why is it imp- so important to update these claims? Because I'm looking on your page, gettingjeffersonright.com, where you're sort of previewing the new book, the second edition. You talk about Sally Hemings and the children. Why is it important? You say, did Jefferson use the Bible to write the Declaration of Independence? Obviously, this is must this must be a claim by Barton that Jefferson uses Scripture to write the Declaration of Independence. What what can you tell us about that? Uh, that one I think comes from the Founders Bible. That one may not be one that uh, Barton directly wrote, but it's in a it's in the Founders Bible, which he helped to edit. Uh, it was written by uh, three uh, other people. I don't recall their names right offhand, but it's in, as I say, it's in a book that he is responsible for. And yeah, I mean, that's a silly claim uh, because we have Jefferson himself saying that he, uh, you know, didn't turn to any particular book. Uh, he's, you know, every, all the uh, American patriots at the time kind of thought alike. And uh, he drew on a variety of sources, but the Bible wasn't one of them. Mm. Yeah, they were children of the Enlightenment more so than anything, I think, weren't they? They had these principles that they were pulling from different Enlightenment philosophers and thinkers. And, and you know, some of them were Christians. That's the whole thing. And well, what is what is Barton's program? Because you look at his whole sort of body of work, his presentations, his books, his YouTube stuff. He's on Kenneth Copeland's Believer's Voice of Victory. He's all over the place. He's... Catherine Stewart calls him the Where's Waldo of Christian nationalism because you know, he's like, he's everywhere. Everywhere you turn, he's there. Why is it so important for him to quote unquote prove in air quotes that Jefferson was a an evangelical, not only that, but a Christian nationalist in that sort of mold? Well, Jefferson presents a problem for Christian nationalists uh, because of he's the wall of separation guy. Ah. He's, he's the fellow who, you know, used that phrase it to the Danbury Baptists. And uh, not only did he use that phrase, but he used a lot of other phrases that suggested that church and state should be separate. Anytime it was suggested that church and state uh, not be separate, he, he was, of course, all over it. He'd sworn on the altar of God, you know, enmity against any efforts to, over the mind of man. I mean, he he was uh, very much dedicated to a freedom of conscience. And so, you know, this is, on, on one hand, we talk about him in relationship to his work in, or his uh, views of slavery and his views of black people and African-Americans uh, as being so despicable. Uh, that's the low point. But the, the high point for Jefferson is his dedication to the freedom of conscience mm-hmm. and uh, his dedication to making sure there was a Bill of Rights. He just, he hammered and hammered Madison. Uh, he was in Paris at the time when uh, the Constitution was, you know, the Constitutional Convention did their work. Mm-hmm. But when, it, when the Constitution came out with no uh, Bill of Rights, he was all over Madison. You know, we need we need a Bill of Rights to protect our freedoms. And right. Madison didn't didn't want to do that. And Jefferson, no, we've got to have one. And just uh, over and over again, he wrote many, many letters to many people to try to drive that home. And so his, uh, his separation of church and state, freedom of conscience, all those were so important. 
And uh, the Christian nationalists, that's a problem for them. They they want to somehow render the uh, the First Amendment into something it's not. The the Establishment Clause, for them, they they need it to somehow allow for an establishment. Mm-hmm. You know, if not a hard establishment of naming Christianity, the soft establishment where, you know, it's sort of, sort of having laws that favor or privilege Christianity. And uh, they say they don't want that, but that, you know, in effect, that's, that's what many of these proposals sound like. In the second half of my conversation with Dr. Warren Throckmorton, we are going to get more into this issue of some of the dominionist theology angles that are driving guys like David Barton, the supposed quote-unquote Christian nationalist historian that's so favored among evangelicals and those in the Christian right. And then at the last bit of the conversation, we're going to get into Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, because, of course, Coulter and Throckmorton, in this new edition of Getting Jefferson Right, they take issue with some of the stuff that Wolf claimed in his book. And, of course, I picked up on the fact that it was published by Canon Press. And, of course, this this is Doug Wilson, isn't it? So we have to get into that issue as well. What's the connection between Canon Press, Stephen Wolf, and Doug Wilson? So that's another massive area of concern. As soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, here we go. There's a connection to Doug Wilson. Now, what's coming up in the next few episodes here on the show as we get close to the end of 2023? We've got an episode with my good friend David Hayward, the Naked Pastor. That's coming out after this one with Dr. Warren Throckmorton, and then I'm talking to Susan Hayward, who's no relation to David. She's written a book called Giving Up God, and I'm really interested to hear what Sarah has to say. And then I'm going to be trying to schedule an episode with Joshua Stewart. In fact, I've just been on his show. If you want to look that episode up, his podcast is called The Mediocre Observer. We had about an hour and a half discussion the other day. Absolutely wonderful talk. He was interviewing me. I was interviewing him talked about all the stuff, my backstory in Christianity, theology, the Bible. We got into deconstruction, deconversion, really good conversation. So I want to have Josh on my show. So that's going to be hopefully coming up. We're trying to set up a time sometime in early December before the holidays hit, and that will probably be the last episode of Mindship Podcast for 2023 as we wrap things up going into the Christmas, Thanksgiving holidays and all that. The other thing I was going to say is that Unfortunately, we were not able to have Catherine North booked in for November's MindShift Zoom call. I'm going on vacation the last couple of weeks of November, and she couldn't make it happen in the first couple of weeks. So unfortunately, we are not going to be able to schedule that in with Catherine. I'm hoping to get that done maybe in January. She should be hopefully the first guest coming up in January. And again, these are benefits that you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show we do our MindShift Zoom calls usually around about the third Sunday of the month. But as I said, unfortunately, we couldn't make it happen with Catherine. But that should be coming up, hopefully, as I say, in January. All right, let's get on back into the second half of the conversation with Dr. Warren Throckmorton as we continue to explore this issue of getting Jefferson right, debunking the historical revisionism of Christian nationalism. Why is Barton so popular? Why is he all over the place? Like, why is he the Where's where's Waldo? Because it seems to me, you know, the claims that he makes, sort of the program that he's got, the agenda that he's got, is to prove, again, in air quotes, that America was founded as a Christian nation. Most of the founding fathers were Christians. 
I mean, he'll say things like, again, there's another NPR article talks about, you know, some of his claims that the Constitution was taken verbatim from Scripture, that most of the founding fathers had Bible or seminary degrees, that Congress funded religion and printed the Bible. He'll make those kind of claims to sort of prove again that that the founding fathers were evangelicals, that America was absolutely founded as a Christian nation. I mean, is that why, you know, you fast forward until what's going on today with the sort of Trump evangelical Christian nationalism thing that we've been seeing the last eight or 10 years, is that why Barton is is where he is in that sense? Well, I think that's that explains a lot of his popularity with the, you know, the evangelicals, is that this is a message that resonates uh, very well. Uh, with them, it, it's certainly a, a comfortable idea that this is, you know, their nation. That uh, the country was founded as a evangelical, I almost said white evangelical nation. <laughs> I think for, well, I think for some that is well. part of it. Yeah, I don't. A big part I don't of know it. that. Well, I don't know that it is for for all evangelicals. That's I think, true. I think for some that's not the key feature, but I think for others it might be. Hmm. And uh, you know that. It's it's hard to separate that out, but you you know you do have to. Sometimes I think of it as a kind of a soft white nationalism because for some they there it's very clear that the the uh, the racial component is is key. Uh, we might be getting over into that with uh, uh, some of the uh, you know Stephen Wolf's case for Christian or Christian, Christian nationalism. Yeah, I you know he he says it's not, but. You know, some of what the book talks about with, you know, ethnic, uh, some of the uh, some of the terms that he uses it makes me think that that might be more important to people who favor that version of it. Mm-hmm. But with, um, yeah. you know, with what David Barton puts forward, you, st- you still have to look at who does who does the philosophy or who does the proposal empower? And when you say, let's get back to the way the founders did it, you know, the founders were Christians, this is what they wanted, this is how they want the country to be. Well, who's that good for? Who does that work for? Yeah. Who does it, who benefits from that? Yeah. And, you know, it, at the time of the founding, that really worked well for white men. Mm. But, you know, it, it didn't, it doesn't empower women, doesn't empower Native people certainly doesn't empower blacks, minorities. So uh, I don't know if that's an appealing message to every element of our society. Mm-hmm. It's certainly enough, though, isn't it? And like you mentioned, Mike Johnson, I mean, here's a guy I've done a lot of reading on him since I, I'd never heard of him, you know, and then he became Speaker of the House. And there's all these articles all of a sudden, like, who's the real Mike Johnson? And he kind of presents this face of he's a reasonable guy, you know, when the you know, same-sex marriage law was was you know pronounced. I was I was I respected it and all that, but his record absolutely doesn't you know bear that out. He he's tried numerous times to overturn that sort of legislation. He's fought against LGBTQ rights and all the rest of it. You know, and then like you say, there's the connection to David Barton because it seems like the other piece of the story is is a America was founded as a Christian nation. B we've sort of strayed from that path, and then C the crucial piece is we need to get back to that status once again, at which point God will start blessing the nation, sort of like he blessed Israel in the Old Testament, you know, under that covenant sort of thinking. And that's where a guy like a Mike Johnson, I think, is is plays into that narrative. Would you kind of see it that way? Sure. I think that that is a pretty good summary. 
the covenant idea is one that you often will hear Barton talking about. And, you know, to the degree that Mike Johnson or any of the politicians say that we have to make our laws in such a way that uh, God will bless the nation, then it it does sound like that uh, covenant nation idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly within, um, I mean, I suppose that's uh, acceptable within some versions of Christianity, but, uh, you know, traditionally evangelical teaching is that uh, Israel is the only covenant nation uh, and America is not even in the Bible. So yeah. it it seems like a stretch to me theologically to put America and a, a country not even in the Bible in that kind of a covenant nation spot. Mm-hmm. Right. But the thing is, what the research I've done on the founding fathers, the pilgrims and all that, the Puritans, they, a lot of them did see America as a covenant nation, didn't they? I mean, the language is shot through some of the early sermons and some of the statements that guys like John Winthrop and others make, you know, that America was the, the city on the hill, the shining light to all the rest of the world. If God, if we, if we obey God, he will bless us. If we disobey God, he will curse us. Basically, just like the dynamic you see in the Hebrew Bible with, with Yahweh and Israel, so, and I think that's where David Barton, he's certainly picked up those ideas. They're there. You can find them, can't you? The, the, the pilgrims, I should say, uh, firm, a lot of them did firmly believe that America was, or the, I should say the colonies, was sort of a covenant nation. That's why they left. They saw the America as sort of, you know, the promised land. They were fleeing the, the uh, persecution right. of Egypt, as it were, in Europe and all that. So that, that fits into their narrative, doesn't it? It does, and uh, I think that is why they go back to the Mayflower Compact and, you know, some of those writings to say that's where America started. Well, you know, the Americas that I live in started, uh, at least the America that's that has the form of government we have, uh, you know, started with the Constitution. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the supreme law of the land, not the Mayflower Compact. Uh, and you know, if you want to talk about a tradition, you could also, I'll, uh, I'll see your Mayflower, Mayflower compact and I'll, I'll raise you a, uh, a Providence, right. uh, form of government where, uh, there's no, there's freedom of conscience, you know, there's, there's religious freedom. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I, I, uh, I'll just mention this, uh, my, um, Let's see. I think it's nine great greats. If I said great uh, nine times, grandfather, right? John Throckmorton came over with Roger Williams, and uh, was one of the people who signed that first, you know, Providence form of gov- proposal for a form of government. I take a irrational, yeah, a rational amount of pride in that. Mm. <laughs> you should, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Now, how do you get from that into Stephen Wolf? Because we talked a little bit earlier. Here's a guy that wrote this book, uh, 2022, I think it was. So it's fairly recent. The Case for Christian Nationalism, as we mentioned, published by Doug Wilson's Canon Press, which has a lot of issues that we could get into, I'm sure. But how do you get from David Barton into Stephen Wolf? Why, why do you include that Case for Christian Nationalism in your new book? Well, we wanted to... We wanted to talk about uh, the place of uh, historical revisionism in Christian nationalism. So we started out from that point of view, and then we, you know, this this book came out, the case for Christian nationalism. So we we just simply looked to see if 
uh, he had made any claims about Jefferson. And uh, he didn't uh, he didn't really look at uh, history of the the founding era at all like Barton does. But there was a little bit about that uh, time period, and there were a couple of claims about Jefferson. Uh, mainly, um, there was a claim that Jefferson had uh, nothing to do with the Bill of Rights. Uh, mm. That uh, Jefferson, because he was in Paris, he didn't have any impact on the Bill of Rights, uh, and that tied into a broader claim that maybe Jefferson and Madison really weren't that influential on religious policy. And what that led Wolf to do was to say that, well, we should look at some of the other founders, those who had also had influence on the First Amendment. Maybe their view of the Establishment Clause is what we should be looking at instead of Madison and Jefferson's. And so I picked out a guy named Roger Sherman, who was from Connecticut. And uh, in Connecticut, uh, they did have an establishment. Uh, You know, they had uh, establishment of of one religion there that was favored. And uh, so maybe the Establishment Clause really wasn't that much of an Establishment Clause. Maybe, you know, mm-hmm. even though it says there shall be no Establishment, maybe maybe it didn't quite mean it. And so we took that apart. We uh, First of all, we just wanted to look at the claim, did Jefferson have any influence on the Bill of Rights? And uh, so we find that, found that he did. Uh, he was in Paris, but he wrote... Uh, you know, I don't want to get this wrong. Uh, I think it was 27 letters. At least he may have written more. We we found 27 to at least 15 different people just urging them, pleading with them to go to their state ratification conferences or if they had anything to do with, with any influence mm-hmm. to include a Bill of Rights. And indeed, his name came up in three state uh, ratif- uh, ratifying conventions, mm. uh, and so he did have an influence, and uh, his but his biggest influence was on Madison, because Madison came out of the convention, the Constitutional Convention, really feeling as though a Bill of Rights was not necessary. But over the course of uh, the correspondence with Jefferson, he changed his mind, and there were other things that. Uh, that went into changing his mind, but certainly, you know, his old friend uh, Jefferson uh, and persuaded him. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, so we addressed that historically, and then we uh, also addressed the uh, the idea of Jefferson's and Madison's influence on establishments in the states. It took a while, but eventually, you know, the states disestablished their their state religions too. So again, it took a while it, it over, but over the long haul, you know, which view won out mm-hmm. uh, was the disestablishmentarianism view. Right. What about the dominionist piece? Cause I know Wolf mentions that in his book, the case for Christian nationalism, there's a chapter on dominionism and you know, this idea that it goes back to guys like RJ Rushdini, doesn't it? If you believe that America was a Christian nation, they've strayed from the path, they need to get back to it. Then the next logical question is, I suppose, what is the means by which that's done? How do you do that? You could go a number of different ways, couldn't you? You could go like Rush Judy advocated sort of this hard theonomy stance. 
the the Old Testament should become the law of the land and all the rest of it. Doesn't seem like Wolf is that hardcore, but his association with guys like Doug Wilson, you do kind of wonder, is he preaching, well, how do we do that? Some form of, of a theocratic government? Where is he going with it? He talks about a Christian prince in right. his book, and it, it does seem that he's advocating for a very centralized form of uh, government that uh, has power to enforce Christianity. He talks about the potential use of uh, state violence against heretics, you know, however defined, mm -hmm. uh, false teachers, non-Christians, uh, which could include uh, capital punishment, banishment, imprisonment. Uh, these are pretty harsh yeah, measures. That sounds like straight out of Rush Dooney, doesn't it? Yeah. The kind of stuff he was advocating for. Because who's going to carry that out? And it ultimately comes down to, it's going to be the state, isn't it, who has to enforce those religious laws. Isn't that the case? Who's going to do it? Who's going to see see it through? Well, yes. And he's, you know, he says he's talking about this theoretically, what would be the the role of a Christian prince, what would be the role of, of government in this kind of a system. In the last, oh, I think it's the last chapter, near the end of the book, he kind of muses about how would this actually look. And he, he recognizes that in our system in the United States that the Constitution would have to change. I mean, this could not be implemented in our current setup. But he does think that maybe governors, Christian governors in states, could nullify federal law and, I, I, I guess, set up little fiefdoms or something, mm -hmm. little Christian nationalist, nationalist states. Uh, and so that seems like, you know, maybe he's trying to throw a signal. I don't know. I think it's pretty far-fetched. Ah. But it um, certainly seems to have captured a lot of the imagination of uh, reformed, reformed-oriented, uh, theologically-oriented uh, young men on social media. I will say yep. that. Yep. Well, the, these are the same. These are the Doug Wilson fanboys, isn't it? The same. That's the same crowd. And that that what you just talked about when I did my research on Doug Wilson, he's right in the heart of the Redoubt region. You know, right up there in Moscow, Idaho. It's, he doesn't seem to be a hardcore sort of American readout guy, but he's he's playing on that sort of mindset, isn't he? That he's like, we're in this region. If you want to come up here and escape from the, the madness of the rest of the world or the rest of America, we're kind of creating our own thing. And there's been a lot of talk about, is Doug Wilson trying to take over the town of Moscow, Idaho? Is he running a cult up there, what's going on. He's got a, a sprawling religious empire with a seminary and a Bible college and a school and, you know, Canon Press and all these other uh, avenues that he's getting his message out, you know. So why would Canon Press publish the case for Christian nationalism? And he's wholeheartedly endorsed some of the controversy, you know, because Wolf's been accused of being a kinist, uh, a racist. He's had affiliations with people sort of in that world. And Wilson himself is no stranger to that controversy with his book, Southern Slavery, as it was. You know, so what's that whole piece about? Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot of specifics about Wilson's uh, project, other than it does seem like uh, 
the you know these pretty comprehensive approach to to uh, church and state there but mm-hmm. i th- i think that you can let me speak more broadly uh to the types of the christian nationalists that i see you have some that feel you have to work within the system and probably david barton would be more and his you know his uh followers would be more in that ballpark they feel like that passing christian laws passing laws to reflect the bible is the way to go you don't have to change the constitution or anything just work within it then there are uh, others that maybe are more within the stephen wolf area that feel that to really do a christian nationalist state you would have to change the structure right and we'll work within it as long as we can but really eventually uh, the state will probably push back and we would have to change the state. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is what maybe the book was about, was to provide a kind of blueprint if ever that became necessary, if you will, or possible. I mean, we do have some of the, you know, these folks on social media who are calling for that, calling oh, for yeah. Absolutely. the Civil War or armed conflict. They say, you know, afterwards they, they aren't, but they... They certainly sound like they are. Yeah. Well, there's that intersection that we we saw mostly during the Trump era, wasn't it? This the alt right and the Christian right, the whole militia thing. A lot of that came together, and that's why I think guys like Doug Wilson, like I said, they're so popular because he he's again he's so slippery. He'll endorse you know sort of that movement, but he'll shy away from it. I think you're right. I wonder if that fits into what Fred Clarkson talks about the sort of hard or soft dominion theology there's kind of two streams or iterations isn't there like you say the soft dominionists they want to take dominion but they're not they're going to do it like you say within the system they'll they'll infiltrate the halls of power which is what barton's doing guys like uh lance wall now and others but then you've got the rush dooney types the reconstructionists they're more hardcore out there they're saying no at some point we may have to take over this thing and actually re- restructure the state and it's going to be a long some sort of Christian lines, whatever that theonomy, that's what it is. Doug Wilson's a theonomist, you know, and I don't know if Wolf falls into that category, but it sure sounds like he's, he's more on that side, isn't it? it? It does. And because it's more of a blueprint, you know, it's hard to know what he's really, uh, what he would really settle on. Mm. I think there's enough wiggle room that he could say, you know, he means one thing or another. It doesn't mean one thing or another, but, yeah, I think if we're trying to typecast or line things up categorically, I think the way you put it uh, sounds about right to me. Mm. Well, I know you've got to get going. I just have one last question. And why is it so important to get this work out there? Because you know you've kind of set the this you set the standard. You set your stall out with the first episode, the first edition, I should say. But why now? It's like why do we have to set the record straight? Uh, for doing this again, haven't we done this already? You know, we've we've debunked <laughs> David Barton. Why are we doing this again? Why is it so important to get this out there? Well, there's there seems to be a conspiracy of silence among huh. Christian leaders. Uh, you know, when um, when the first book came out, Jay Richards was uh, I mentioned. You know, he was very uh, taken by the book and talked to Glenn Beck and. James Robeson and a lot of Christian leaders about 
some of the errors in David Barton's work, but you know, look, nothing really changed. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people know about this and Christian nationalism has, you know, continued to pace. I mean, the, the upswing is, is there. And I, I think, you know, Michael and I just, we wanted to bring attention to this conspiracy of silence that a lot of people know what's going on. They know these things aren't true. And yet, you know, nobody's really talking about it. Mm. So we wanted to get this information out there again. We know that there's an influence that uh, this is having on our politics. In fact, if you think about uh, the work of Andrew Whitehead, Sam Perry, Mm -hmm. uh, on um, Christian nationalism, you know, they showed uh, through their research that people who believe that America either is or should be a Christian nation, they're more likely to vote for, for Trump. Yep, absolutely. Where, where did that idea, proximally now, I mean, it's been around for a long time, but proximally, who's been pushing that idea for a long time? Mm-hmm. Who, who's who's kind of the one of the key figures in that? And that's been, you know, David Barton. Yeah. At least for the last 20 years or so. Absolutely. And so, you know, you think about, did did David Barton bring us Donald Trump? Uh, it's, it's kind of an intriguing idea. Who think, came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> well, Barton or Trump? Clearly, clearly Barton did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he paid the way so for sure. If, if we want to think about this in a linear fashion, David Barton started talking about the Christian nation idea, or at least built on, you know, the, what was going on in the fifties and, you know, other idea, other people who were expressing that, but he's, he's brought it into the Republican party as mainstream policy. Yep. And and we see what that actually, we can see empirically the effects of that. So it's not that we have a political agenda in mind. We just feel like that the truth is in danger of being really lost here about some of these stories and christian nationalism it seems to us relies on historical revisionism oh absolutely so uh you know we we just thought we'd take another bite out of this apple and and uh see if we if we could uh you know maybe uh provide some reality therapy here it's true yeah well you can get the book on amazon for sure i'm looking at your site it's called gettingjeffersonright.com the book, the whole title of the book is Getting Jefferson Right, Fact-Checking Claims About Thomas Jefferson, the second edition. You can order it, what is it, say, a paperback hardcore, hardcover or ebook. You can get it now on Amazon. Is that correct? Is there any other way that people can find you then on social media if they want to get a hold of you? Uh, w. Throckmorton on uh, Twitter uh, is a good way, but the blog uh, that I um, uh, use, Substack, so it's warrenthrockmorton.substack.com. Mm-hmm. And I know you've got a lot of good information on David Barton. I know we, we went a little bit more into the weeds the last time we talked. If people are interested in that episode, we talked about some of his claims. He says he was a doctor, a historian, and all the rest of it. So there's a lot more about Barton, the man, that we didn't even touch on in this conversation. But right. there's a lot more to to delve into. On There's a lot of troubling things about David Barton, for sure, are there just on a well, professional level as a so-called historian and all the rest of it. So you've done a lot of work on Barton, I think, haven't you? Yes. Uh, you mentioned the doctorate. There's uh, 
a, a Twitter thread going around right now showing David Barton claiming to have an earned doctorate. Yes. Yeah, which uh, he doesn't have. And when that was when I brought that out, he took the video down right away. But he's never been forced to answer about that. You know, nobody's ever forced him to say, well, why did you say you had an earned doctorate if you don't? Yeah. It's a big thing, isn't it? Especially for those of us that have an earned doctorate. We put in the hard work. <laughs> we wrote the dissertations. We did all the research. We did all that. Took years yeah. out of our life, you know. So I, I take a personal offense to someone who's got a an honorary doctorate even claiming that it's an earned doctorate, you know. So, yeah, I have an issue with Barton just on that level for sure. But thank you so much, Dr. Warren Throckmorton. I should say doctor. It's not, it's not an earned doctorate. It's a... It's not an honorary doctorate, is it? It's it's earned. It's earned. We earned it the hard way, yeah. man. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad for your hard work. Keep going on it. And I'm sure we can touch base again. If Well, it's not going to be if. It's going to be when something more comes out. So I'll be hitting you up at some point again, and we'll touch base again. Thank you so much for being on the show. All right. Thanks for the conversation. <laughs>